Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. On this episode, we are going to be talking about The Head of Diocletian, post-AD 290 by Alan Moore. This is chapter four of the novel Voice of the Fire, which tells the story of Northampton, England, over the course of 6,000 years as a series of loosely connected novellas and short stories, each of them with some kind of weird or unsettling element. That'll actually be one of our discussion points in this episode, of course. And Voice of the Fire was originally published in 1996. The story comes to us from one of our Patreon supporters who nominated this uh, to be on the ballot and then was chosen uh, by our other Patreon supporters. And we've been really enjoying our coverage of this. The deeper we get into this novel, the more I'm enjoying it. And this story uh, combined a lot of elements I love of fiction, and it was a real treat to read. So thank you uh, for making us continue with what's been a really challenging reading experience in uh, Voices of the Fire. Yeah, this has been really awesome. So I, I also am so grateful that these have been nominated and also that people have been been voting for them once they actually show up on the ballot. And I think at least one of these has also been commissioned too. So we've been making our way through this actually at a pretty good pace, especially this year. And I have been getting to read a ton of Alan Moore over this summer because Brent and I, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, he and I have been doing a bonus series on Patreon where we have been looking at the first volume of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. And actually, just about uh, 24 hours ago, uh, in, in our time anyway, Brandon, our, our time here on the other side of this, uh, Brent and I finished that up. And so uh, it's actually had a kind of a bittersweet feeling for me. But then I got to turn around <laughs> the next morning and keep talking about <laughs> Alan Moore, which is great. And this story is super fun for me because we now are in the period of my professional training as a historian, or at least very close to it which is to say that we are in the late Roman Empire. Uh, but also, it turns out that this story is about coins. It's about numismatics. It's about the study of old coins, which is something that I did in grad school. I didn't become a numismatist, but I did take the one course that uh, Princeton offered on numismatics and got to touch a lot of late Roman coins and learn all about them. I'm going to have to restrain myself here on this episode. I think people can even probably hear that I'm just getting giddy and kind of just want to talk about Roman coins, but I will uh, I will do my best to keep that under, under restraint here. And uh, I think that's probably just a good point at which I should cut myself off right now and let you do the recap, Brandon. All right, well, let's get into it. The head of Diocletian begins with our first person narrator giving us a classic hard-boiled opener complete with some kind of complaint. In this case, it's a toothache instead of like poverty or a hangover. Uh, and it's really great. So I'm going to read it. My teeth hurt. Standing here beyond the margins of the village, there is only night. The hollow yawning of November wind across cold, furrowed earth. A dark that swallows utterly. So that I cannot tell where darkness ends and I begin. The tin sharp soreness in my gums is all I have to tell me where I am. And I am almost glad of it out here amongst the black fields where the damp wind cuts my cheek. So, yeah, great opener passage here. And as we've said, it's post AD 290. So about 250 years since the last story took place in this novel. And the narrator will soon learn is a Roman soldier and he's on a case. 
He's got scurvy. He's cold and it's dark outside. All of that we kind of learned in that opening passage. And he's hanging around outside a village to track down a rumor about some strange goings on up on a local hilltop. The village people shun this hilltop, this area, because it's got a bad history. People have been devoured by giant dogs up there in the past. There's ghost sightings too, but right now in the dark, there's nothing to see, but there's plenty to hear. Yeah, this is a magnificent opening. I, I, I love the hard-boiledness as well of that passage that you read. It is really evocative and, and tells us quite a bit about the, the character as well, at least his, his mindset, his attitude here as he's you know been dispatched from the, the imperial government to you know, work on some kind of case, to investigate some kind of case. And yeah, as you said, Brandon, we have jumped ahead now. We've actually jumped beyond the classical period of the Roman Empire and into late antiquity. As I said at the top of the show, this is the very beginning of the period on which I have worked as a historian, so I will have a bit to say about that in the discussion <laughs> segment. But for now, just to situate us a little bit, situate our, our listeners, I guess, really, before we get into the, the real plot of the story, what we can say is that this story is taking place after Gladiator and before King Arthur. That's a great uh, way to situate us, I think, historically. <laughs> but between Excalibur and... <laughs> And uh, Gladiator, uh, that's where we are in, in this village. Uh, and and I'm, I cannot wait, Glenn, to hear more about this time period and, and the work you've done on it and uh, the coins. And I can't wait to get to the discussion, but we got to knock out the rest of the story before we get there. So as I said, there was plenty to hear. And that's because the narrator is within earshot of the local tavern. And he hates the sound of these villagers, in part because he feels so much like an outsider. The villagers, though, have gotten used to his presence in the past few weeks. And as the narrator is thinking about his situation, he sees something up on the hill. And he thinks about rushing in to figure out exactly what's going on there. But he knows his boss, his, whose name is Quintus Claudius, and Quintus Cla Claudius is in Londinium. Uh, so the narrator knows that this guy, Quintus, will take issue with kind of the direct uh, being a hammer instead of a scalpel type of approach to this problem. What the narrator has got to do is collect evidence. So he'll let these people up on the hilltop do their business. He'll check the hilltop tomorrow and investigate. And right now, he can go back to his room at the tavern and get some sleep. There's a celebration at the tavern. That's what he's hearing. And it turns out that this is a bachelor party or a buck's night, as the narrator calls it. The groom is 13 years old, and his buddies are preparing a noose to hang him for some kind of bachelor party game ritual. This groom's friends, the other men in the town, give this guy a knife, and then they proceed to hang him from the tavern rafters to see if he's tough enough, I guess, to cut himself free while he's suffocating. I mean, the real point of the game is this. If the groom lives, his friends have all chipped in for a local prostitute for him to have sex with before he gets married, his last fling, I guess we'd call it. So... Right. This is a little village ritual, I guess. And Caius, here's where we learn our narrator's name. He thinks this is a barbaric ritual, like literally. He, he thinks these people are animals who are so far from the empire and the glories of civilization. And he's just like finished with them. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. He wants to solve the case and go home. 
But what Caius is really carrying around, you know, emotionally is the feeling that he's alone in this village without any backup to call. And all the villagers know he's here to suss out a criminal. And here's what the crime is. There's been some forgery going on and he's going to have to crucify the criminal. Yeah. So it's another detective story. This is the second one that we have gotten in Voice of the Fire. I really enjoyed the first one that we got, and I like this one too. But in this case, the crime is counterfeit coins. It's a currency fraud, essentially. And I am immediately into that hook as a as a story. That really gets me very excited. But there are some, I don't know, maybe some strange things that Moore is doing here. Because as you pointed out, Brandon, Moore opens up the story with a lot of haunting imagery of late antique Northampton in November, complete with stories about black dogs and other ghosts or or, or specters, uh, and also just some beautiful descriptive writing there. And so the story starts off with language that makes us think that something supernatural might be going on here, right? It starts off spooky, and then it moves into the mundane, which is the opposite of how slow build horror stories usually do it. And I found this move surprising. I think it's a a great technique on Moore's part, because as we'll see as the story continues, the story is weaving in and out of the supernatural and mundane. And it ultimately ends maybe on an uplifting note. It's hard to say. But I think that Moore wants us to kind of feel as though we're towing the line between whether this is kind of a mundane, hard-boiled detective story or whether it's a ghost story or a horror story. And there's more of like what we saw in that last story of these elements of civilization being this kind of specter that looms over society or whoever it takes over, uh, especially in the in the form of an empire. But this almost has it reversed, as we'll see. And that maybe doesn't make sense, but hopefully we'll be able to tease that out in the discussion. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely going to have to be one of our tacks because the next thing that Moore does is take us really straight into like X-Files or, or Twin Peaks territory when we actually get to meet these villagers. And we realize that we are essentially following the FBI agent who's been sent to the sticks looking for criminals only to discover that everyone is weird. And so it seems like everyone is up to something and there also might actually be something supernatural happening. There's no partner here, right? We don't get a Scully here to, you know, Caius's molder. So it does feel a little more like, uh, uh, like Twin Peaks maybe than the X-Files, but it's, uh, it's an, it's an interesting move. I think it's a lot of fun, but one of the things that we can see in this bachelor party scene that introduces us to these villagers is Moore's interest in tracing the long deray of English cultural traditions. Here, in this case, it is the stag night, though, as you pointed out, Brandon, Moore actually calls it a buck's night, which is, in fact, what that is called in Australia. But we know, like historians, like we know that the modern stag night is it's just that. It's modern. It's an invention of the Industrial Revolution. You can't really do this sort of thing in a village. You kind of need the anonymity of large cities for this, also the specialization of labor of large cities for this, which is not to say that there were not pre-wedding traditions for men and 
women in late antique British villages. It's just that, uh, well, they didn't involve strip clubs and prostitutes. That's definitely, it's definitely an, acron- <laughs> an anachronism that Moore is including here. All right. Well, Caius has gone to bed because he doesn't want to deal with this uh, Bucks tonight. And he's really tired. And as he's laying in bed, he thinks about how awesome Rome is and civilization and empire and how bad scurvy is. Now, you know, of course, Caius doesn't know that he has scurvy. It's not something he's aware of as a as a disease. But he and the other investigators who have come over on a boat all got it. And, um, you know, the way this is described in the story, it's scurvy, right? I'm not a doctor, but it's scurvy. They don't have enough vitamin C from the Mediterranean. In any event, the Roman investigator Caius falls asleep and he dreams of a girl in his room and she leaves and then he follows her He notices that she's wearing a necklace of blue beads, and this girl is leading him to the center of a labyrinth. And there are people sitting around a campfire there. Uh, There's a child with a cut throat, a beggar, a stork-limbed bird man-like creature. Outside, there's loud barking. And this kid with the cut throat takes the Roman's hand, and he gives him a pebble that's been carved into the likeness of a tiny man. Caius puts the pebble in his mouth. The dogs bark louder and louder, and then he wakes up. There's something in his mouth, something he thought he brought back with him from the dream. But it's not a pebble. It's just a tooth that's finally fallen out. Yeah. So with this dream, we are now solidly in Twin Peaks territory. <laughs> we, we will talk about this dream, of course, in the discussion segment. But uh, what I actually really want to talk about here is scurvy, Brandon, because uh, this is not scurvy. Uh, it is true that <laughs> one of the symptoms of scurvy- I said I wasn't a doctor. I hope <laughs> I, I made that well, clear. Well, and I'm not either. I guess I don't, know, I don't know that we really need to make that clear, but we'll make that clear. We, neither of us is doctors, and we're definitely not dispensing medical advice, though drink some orange juice from time to time. That's you know, it's a good idea. But yeah, it's true that one of the symptoms of scurvy is that your teeth fall out. But scurvy is, uh, it's a form of malnutrition, right? It's a vitamin C deficiency. And there's just no reason that someone as high up the pyramid of exploitation as our protagonist is would be malnourished here in the, well, around the year 300 or so. But also, he's just not the only one suffering from this, right? He tells us that he came to Britain with some other investigators and that they also were suffering from this affliction. But then no one in the village seems to be. So it, Seems to be to me then, a, you know, a communicable disease of some kind, and you know, this is maybe picking nits here, but I actually think that this matters because the disease becomes a metaphor for the condition of the Roman state. Which, again, this is something we will take up in the discussion. That's an excellent point. Do you have any idea of what the disease might be, or do you think it's uh, uh, meant to be mysterious in nature? Well, as we said, we're not doctors, so I don't know what I think that it would be. There's not a major plague at this time, though there were some others in the the third century, but none of them have this as a symptom, at least not you know in the few narrative accounts that we get of them. So I don't know quite what it's supposed to be. So I think there are two options. One is that, as you suggest, more is being mysterious. I will say, though, that I do think that there's a chance that more actually does think that this is scurvy. It just just isn't actually scurvy. It just wouldn't line up with how scurvy would actually function at this time. That, that's my sense of it. 
as well, too, is that it more wants this to be scurvy. And, you know, this is a weird discussion break here. But <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think more wanted to be scurvy, but it, it doesn't quite work, uh, historically speaking, in the story. Right. And one of the things happening here is that Moore might actually be thinking that our protagonist, Caius, has come to Britain via boat. Uh, I mean, he's obviously come to Britain via boat because it's an island, but I mean that he sailed from Rome uh, through the Mediterranean and out into the Atlantic to Britain and that he got scurvy from being on the ship for too long, which, hey, that's how we all know about scurvy because we, it's a pirate disease, right? This is It's an early right. modern pirate disease because you're on the ship for too long and your fruit supply doesn't, or your vegetable supply, you know, for that matter, doesn't last long enough for you to get enough vitamin C when you're out at, at uh, you know, out in the ocean for months at a time. And Moore doesn't say that he didn't come that way, but that's not actually how someone would have gone to Britain from Rome. He probably would have traveled on a boat from Rome to the Mediterranean coast of France, then taken a, a river boat up the Rhone. And then from there, there are a few different options about how you would go to Northern Gaul to cross the English Channel to get to Britain, uh, depending on the time of year and a few other factors. That's actually how a person uh, like this would travel to Britain. But I suspect that what Moore does have in mind here actually is that he just took a boat all the way from Rome and that's how they got scurvy. I don't know. Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. As you said, this is a strange discussion break I decided to make us have here. <laughs> well, I love it. I'm fascinated by this. Uh, but let's continue on with this story so we can continue with these uh, these discussions. So, it's now day, right? Caius has woken up and he has to investigate the hill since he saw some activity up there last night. Caius blows out of the tavern and gets his horse ready and is moving like he's on a mission. And some of the villagers notice the change in Caius's bearing. Or Caius is just self-conscious and these guys are all hung over from the night before and are just kind of giving everybody the hairy eyeball. In any event, Caius takes his horse up to the hill. Now, there's a Christian colony nearby. Uh, they've succeeded financially in this area of Northampton by being shrewd business people. And they are charitable because they let the church community work for them for free at the mill. So, I mean, they're just raking in profits. Soon, Caius thinks that they, the Christian colony, will have taken over the other mill in the area, and they'll have a monopoly, basically, on mills and grain supply and just increase their wealth exponentially. So what Caius wants is for the Christians to be guilty of forgery, but he's got to follow the case where he it leads. If it leads to nowhere, if he can't find someone to convict, uh, maybe then he can just blame the Christians and get them run out of town or crucify one of them or something. But anyway, Caius has been thinking about this and traveling at the same time. Now he's on top of the hill. And he sees that someone has indeed set up a camp here the night before. The fire pit is still warm. And why else would someone camp on the hilltop unless they're trying to be sneaky about their behavior? So he hunts around in the fire pit and the surrounding brush and weeds, and he's looking for this forged denarius, and then he finds one. And this is what the text says. The head of Diocletian gazes unforgiving out across the buried camp. I just like that sentence, so I wanted to read it. Also has the title in it. 
in any event, Caius does a quick visual inspection of the coin and notices that there are some flaws on it, like the flaws a forger uh, might make in creating uh, forgery. You know, this or that isn't quite right, but Caius notices these errors. Right. And the error here is actually a pretty big one. And this is where I'm going to really have to restrain myself uh, and, and might need your help actually here right? in restraining <laughs> myself from just wanting to talk about ancient coins for a super long time. But yeah, the head of Diocletian, it's in the, the sentence that you read, it's the title of the story. The head of Diocletian is on the coin, right? Uh, almost every state does this with coins. You put the image of some leader on one side of the coin. The Practice in the Roman state here, the ancient Roman state, is to put the bust of the reigning emperor on there. And this is on just one side of the coin. That's called the obverse side. The other side of the coin is called the reverse side. And this is where you'll get, you know, like ideological images and slogans. And what the counterfeiters have done here is they've taken the obverse of one type of coin, a, a coin that would be circulating now, and they have put it with the reverse of another type of coin, but it's a coin from decades ago. And, you know, if you're not really paying attention, right, this can work because these counterfeiters are using the proper tools to make coins. Uh, they must have stolen these somehow. And so, the coins look like real coins if you only look at one side, right? If you're not really inspecting them. And just to make like an analogy here to our world to, to clarify that, this would just be like making a dime and then putting the bust of FDR on it on the obverse side, but then putting the year 1892. So it's like, it's obviously fake, right? Because FDR wasn't president <laughs> until you know the 1930s. So it's obviously fake when you look at that. But the thing is, you might not look at that, right? Because you just the ma from a macro perspective, it just looks like a legit coin. So yeah, it's it's fairly clever. It it is pretty clever. Yeah, I like this this coin forgery business. This is a really cool way to think about uh, the power of civilization through its cur currency, and then also the way a civilization might be deemed as weak or strong based on its currency as well. And all of this is going to come up soon in in the story too. Right. Yeah. We've got the disease that is making people's teeth fall out. Then we've got something going on with the coins as well, that they're, uh, well, they're kind of falling out of the metaphorical head of the empire as well. So yeah, <laughs> it's all, it's all really working there. It's, it's fantastic. This is actually the second story this week that I've been reading about counterfeit money. Cause uh, I've been reading to Finch, uh, my you know two and a half year old son. We've been reading him the third Hardy Boys book, which it turns out is about people making fake twenties. So Finch has been having a lot of questions about fake money. He doesn't really know about real money yet, right? But he wants to <laughs> he wants to know what a fake 20 is and uh, it's been it's been a, it's been an interesting week. So I, I don't know what a, I don't know what lessons he's going to take from that. But uh, uh, really I want to keep talking here about the Christians in this passage because this bit I will say was strange to me. Now the Christians don't matter in the story. We're not actually going to meet a Christian character. They don't turn out to be the secret counterfeiters or anything like that. They're here only so that Moore can mention the idea of persecuting them, which I will say that does let us date the story. I'll talk more about that later. But the idea that there would be an agricultural community exclusively composed of Christians here in a largely unsettled part of Roman Britain is probably the most fantastical thing in this story or the most erroneous thing in this story, because this is just not what Christianity was like at the end of the third century or the beginning of the fourth. It was largely an urban religion, and it was not generally adopted by every member of a 
family. In fact, it rather famously divided families. And so this is just another anachronism here where I think Moore is really envisioning a more modern approach to new religions. And he's thinking of something like the Puritans or the Mormons, who you know are a community of families all practicing a new religion and who eventually you know set out to form their own autonomous communities. But yeah, here in late antiquity, this is pretty anachronistic. That's this is, we just wouldn't have a, a community, you know, a small village of just Christians out here. Yeah, or he's taking uh, things that show up in, you know, like the Book of Acts or something like that, or, or or things you can glean from Paul's letters to the various cities that are like, okay, there's this isolated group of people that are the Christian community in this town, and, you know, they're who I'm writing to, and they have to be self-sufficient, or, you know, Josephus saying, like, look at these people, they have everything in common, they share all their stuff. And it's just, yeah, more is kind of pulling on these really popular threads, I guess, of what Christianity was in the vague past, you know, <laughs> instead of really trying to look at this time period and saying, how did Christianity grow in England in, say, you know, 290 AD. Right. And and something else that is just, I think, missing from the depiction of this village life here, you know, the life around Northampton is also is slavery. That's not something that is showing up here. So yeah, there's a lot about rural society in Roman Britain, especially late antique Roman Britain, that well, one, we don't really know as as scholars, though we know a lot more now than we did in the 90s when, when Moore would have been doing some research to write this story. So, you know, I'm coming at this from a different perspective and also 30 years later than than Moore. But yeah, this is not the way that I would have portrayed this this village life here, I will say. Right. Yeah. I, I'm sure we'll, we'll take this up in the discussion too. So let's get back to the tale at hand. Caius grabs this coin and he races back to the tavern and gets out his, you know, special anti-counterfeiting gear to determine whether or not the coin is truly counterfeit silver, because that's what's on his mind. You know, the easiest way to determine whether it's a real coin or a fake one has to do with the purity of the silver in it. So you can weigh a real denarius against the forgery. A real denarius should weigh one sixth of an ounce, and a fake coin, because it's less, it would have less heavy silver in it, in the you know metal blend, would weigh less than the true denarius. But when Caius measures the coins, he has a denarius with him. When he measures the coins on his scale, the true denarius rises, meaning it weighs less, meaning it's less pure in terms of the silver content of the coin than the fake coin. So the fake coin has more silver in it. Now, Caius tries the scale a few more times. He takes it apart and puts it back together, but the results are always the same. And he is really upset about this because it means that the forgeries have more silver in them than the denarius. And that means that Rome, or the Roman Empire, is putting junk in their currency. Caius, as we've seen, is like super hot on the Roman Empire. So this realization that the currency might be bad just infuriates him. He like collapses under the weight of this realization. Like he has a literal breakdown because it's as if the Roman Empire has collapsed under the weight of its bad coin. 
He's been an ambassador of a sort from Rome to these villagers. He's had to act in this capacity, and he's acting haughty and above them. But now he has to face these people knowing that Rome has deceived the villagers in this matter, that their counterfeit coins are actually better in terms of silver than the Roman coin. And he knows he can't go after anyone in the villagers. And the villagers now know this too, because some of them saw Caius have a little scene, have his little breakdown. So now there's nothing left to do. There's nowhere to go for Caius. He doesn't have any faith in the Roman Empire. But one thing he can do is walk into the village streets and join the wedding celebrations at hand. So he joins the crowd, the villagers bring him in and accept him, and that's where the story ends. Yeah, this story took a real twist here. This was not what I was anticipating. Uh, For one, I thought for sure that we had Chekhov's crucifixion here, right? (laughs) That you you don't bring up crucifixion on the first page of the story unless someone's going to get crucified at at the end. And of course, this is a real grisly, real awful, horrific way to kill somebody. And, you know, we've had some real, real body horror in Voice of the Fire so far. So I thought for sure that that's where this was actually going to go. And then it it, it doesn't. So I, I felt a little hoodwinked by more in, in a good way, right? Like I, I enjoyed that element of it. Uh, similar to he, you know, starts out giving us a sense that something spooky is going on here and then moves us into the mundane. And it's actually just about the like metallic content of coins is what, you know, like the the (laughs) climax of the story is about. I thought that was a really great move, but I still think that Caius could actually have gone ahead and prosecuted people, right? I mean, they still have been counterfeiting coins and it seemed like the hesitation here was that, well, if I'm going to make my case and prove that these coins are counterfeit, that will reveal that the coins that are coming out of the mint are themselves debased. They've been debased from, you know, the standard that we all accept for how much silver content should be in a denarius, except that you don't actually have to do that to prove that the coins were counterfeit because we've got this whole business with the reverse and obverse not matching up, right? So like that seems to me that that would be the only proof that you would actually need to go to a magistrate to who would then authorize executing these people. And uh, so it's interesting to me that Gaius doesn't doesn't do that nonetheless. There's like almost two ideologies or I don't know, ideas maybe though ideology does come into play here around what money is that's in this story. One is, of course, that a coin is valuable because of the precious metal that it's made out of. So even you know, in early American history, when we were still using the gold standard, the coin had value because technically, or dollar had value because technically it represented a certain amount of gold that you uh, should be able to get or is backed by the amount of gold that the government has or something like that. And that seems to be the way this story switch, the idea that this story switches into, or the ideology that the coin is really valuable because of the currency is really about the amount of silver in it. But then it's also kind of playing with these ideas of fiat currency that we have, which is like the money's valuable because we believe in it. And so, yeah, that to me is also a really strange thing that's going on in this story, like that what is backing the value of the money is what ends up really bothering Caius. But I'm not sure that that would be something he's thinking about in this time period. 
Right. Well, as has really become a tradition for these stories, I do want to start the discussion by, you know, orienting us in time, saying a little bit about this period. But before we get into that, I actually want to let listeners know uh, about a podcast that I was a guest on a, a few months ago at this point. I had the real honor and the real pleasure to be a guest on a podcast called The Bradbury Chronicles, which is exactly what it says in the title. It's a podcast dedicated to exploring the fiction of Ray Bradbury. It's hosted by uh, John DeGreither, who does a, a fantastic job. And I actually went on the show to talk about a Neil Gaiman story called October in the Chair. I was really there in my capacity as co-host of Hanging Out with the Dream King. And the reason that John covered this story on the Bradbury Chronicles is that Neil Gaiman dedicated that story to Ray Bradbury. And uh, we had a lot of fun talking about that story and talking about Bradbury more generally, about how Bradbury uh, writes children. That was actually a pretty big topic of conversation and some other things. And uh, I'd like to encourage listeners to go check that out. And I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes to make that easy for you as well. Yeah, definitely click on the link and check this out. If you like book club style podcasts like we do here at Clay Temple Media, this is one to check out. And, uh, you know, Glenn's always a great guest and a great host as well. So make sure you check out Glenn's, uh, at least Glenn's episode on this podcast, if not the whole podcast itself. All right, well, let's let's get back here to the head of Diocletian. So the date on the story is after the year 290 AD. And we know that it is set during the reign of the Roman emperor Diocletian, and that reign comes to an end in the year 305. Diocletian, I have to say, is a big deal. I mean, he's a massive deal. He's often hailed as having saved the Roman Empire from what scholars now call the mid-third century crisis. Uh, we could have come up with a flashier name, but mid-third century crisis, that's what we call it. That crisis was a number of things. It was a pretty massive crisis. Uh, it was fiscal. It was military. There is also, as I said earlier, a kind of pandemic during this time. But ultimately, this is really a political crisis. And the Roman Empire was a big place, but it had pretty limited opportunities for members of the elite to participate in any kind of prestige system, which, you know, like that's ultimately what elite people do in most societies, right? They participate in prestige systems where they compete with each other for trinkets of some sort because they don't have to work for a living or do their own laundry, but they need <laughs> something to do with their time. And so when one of the Roman emperors, an emperor named Severus Alexander, was murdered, a lot of people claimed a throne. And you end up with something that you know Game of Thrones fans would find familiar. It's uh, civil wars, there's more political murder, there's usurpations, and, and, and so on. I mean, it just goes on for, uh, well, really about 30 years. And with the elite busy playing this kind of Game of Thrones, other crises began. Uh, one of them is that the state ran out of money, which of course then creates other problems like uh, how do you pay your soldiers and what do you do with soldiers you can't pay? And uh, you know, from the perspective of soldiers, what do you do to get food and so on when you're not being paid? And so ultimately, the Roman Empire collapsed in the... Uh, and so ultimately, the Roman Empire collapsed in the middle of the third century. It fragmented into three distinct states that, you know, I think if a few dice rolls had gone differently, these new three states would have carried on independently. But that's not actually what happens. The Roman Empire, we don't really say that it fell until the late fifth century at this point. And Diocletian is not the person who solves this problem, the fragmentation. That's accomplished before him by an emperor named Aurelian. 
But still, when Diocletian comes to power in the 280s, he introduces a series of really big, just major, major reforms that are designed to prevent another crisis like this from happening again. One of the things that he does is introduce a succession plan so that everyone will always know who is going to be the next emperor, no matter what, so that you you can murder all the emperors you want and it doesn't matter because there's a clear rule about who's the next emperor. So, you know, unless you're that person, unless you're like, you know, the vice emperor, there's no reason to go around murdering emperors. You don't get to become the emperor just because you murdered one. <laughs> and Or at least that's how it's supposed to work. In practice, it doesn't really end up that way. But at any rate, uh, that's one of his reforms. That's kind of where he starts. But he also splits the empire into two administrative halves, east and west. And then he gives each one its own emperor and then also its own vice emperor. And so this means that where there used to be one like big spot on the top of the pyramid here, there now are four, which gives people who might want to murder or commit other types of crimes or just, you know, throw like everyone else who's living in the Roman Empire under the bus, so to speak, in order to achieve their own glory for their own, I don't know, narcissism, I guess. Uh, he's made some more spots for people like that so that they don't have to do those sorts of things. And then Diocletian begins to greatly expand the civil bureaucracy, and he brings the elite classes into that bureaucracy, which is very important because this is how he gives the elite, the wealthy elite of the Roman Empire, a prestige system that they can participate in. But it's not just any system. It's a system that connects them to the healthy functioning of the state. So now they actually have like an invested interest in maintaining the state. And then also Diocletian addresses the fiscal crisis and also then an economic problem of inflation, which more brings up here in the story. He does this by fixing prices on certain goods and services, and also by fixing the coinage, which of course, like that's the plot of the story, which I will I will then get back to. But but here's probably a good point actually where I can use some of this information to adjust the date on this story to not just between 290 and 305, which is what you know it says in the title, essentially, but we can actually bring it down to between 301 and 305, because 301 is when the Edict of Maximum Prices was published, and it's actually something that Caius refers to here in this story. But Caius also refers to the common knowledge that Diocletian has been thinking about persecuting Christians, which Diocletian eventually does, and he does that in 303. And this is a a persecution known as the Great Persecution. In in part, it's known as that because it's like the last one. Uh, But what this does is it means that we can actually date this story to like a very precise moment, that this story doesn't take place in some 15-year period. It either has to take place in 301 or 302. Uh, I'm not sure why Moore didn't just say so. It doesn't really matter. But at any rate, the story is definitely (laughs) taking place in 301 or 302, given the context clues in the story. So that's all just a bit of historical orientation for how I really want to kick off the discussion, Brandon, which is by asking about the world building, right? This story is told by an imperial official who seems to normally reside in Rome. I don't think that's abundantly clear in the text, but that seems to be the implication. And so then he comes to this village that will eventually become Northampton, where you know all the stories in Voice of the Fire are, are set, at least is my understanding, but this is where they've all been set so far. And he has some investigating to do. But the story doesn't tell us very much about this village. And and this is the second story in a row, right? In which Moore doesn't seem to be all that interested in the society of the village. 
And this is a really, really big departure from the first two stories that were all about the society here in what's going to become Northampton. And so my question then, Brandon, is what is it then in terms of world building that Moore is interested in in the year 302, right? Like why set the story at this at this time? This is such a good question because I really struggle with this in the story. I kind of just take for granted or I don't know, drop the suspension of disbelief or maybe just put up the suspension of disbelief here uh, when I'm reading these stories because it seems as though Moore is taking what he's built on in the past two stories, I'm sorry, the first two stories in particular, maybe the first three, and saying that's the village life. Nothing much is really changing until I don't know when it's going to change. Industrialization, maybe. Uh, maybe things are starting to change with the influence of the Roman Empire. And that we can just say that's village life. Now there's taverns, but we know about the types of people that live here. We know about the layout of the village. We know about the types of rituals they have. Um, but here are a few things that's changed since Rome took over. And now we're going to focus on the maybe the change that the real impact of bringing civilization to these people and what that looks like, the struggle for civilization versus the barbarism, maybe something along those lines. So I'm not quite sure if that's what Moore is doing. That's what it feels to me like he's doing, even though we're talking about like a 4,000 year period where we're supposed to say very little's changed because it almost feels as though Moore's belief is that nothing changes until industrialization, but he's got to address Rome, right? He's got to address the Romans' occupation of Britain and their presence there. So, yeah, we're talking a little bit about London. We're talking a little bit about the sticks of the Roman Empire. We're talking about attitudes of uh, of a high-end Roman or an elite, you know, Roman investigator, their attitudes towards Rome and the boonies and all that sort of stuff is at play here. And so that's got to be what Moore has in mind is addressing what's changing in Northampton as a result of the presence of the Roman Empire, even in something like a rural village instead of a burgeoning city. One of the things that I find really interesting about Voice of the Fire is that Moore has picked Northampton to tell this story, to trace the development of what is today a pretty big community in England, to trace the to trace the development of that community from prehistoric times up to like literally the 1990s when Alan Moore is writing this book. Now the reason that Moore has picked Northampton is because he's from Northampton. That, so like it's his hometown, and that's that's a great reason to pick Northampton. But by some other standards, Northampton is actually a pretty terrible choice for this type of story <laughs> because Northampton, as it exists today, is a medieval settlement, which isn't to say that nobody ever lived there prior to the early Middle Ages, but that it was not a big or important settlement until uh, really the early Middle Ages. It's an Anglo-Saxon foundation. It's a, a post-Roman Empire foundation. And prior to that, there were a few people who would live here from time to time, but it was not continuously inhabited and was sparsely inhabited during the Roman period, even though the area of what is today England in the Roman Empire was at least two, but possibly as much as four times more populated as it was during the early Middle Ages. 
uh, in fact, really up until we get to about the year 1100 or so. Nonetheless, this was not really a, a, a densely populated area. There probably wasn't any kind of village as far as we can tell. And and so Moore has picked a location that doesn't really represent the course of civilization during, during this period, like prior to the early Middle Ages. And so I think then one of the things that happens is that he's missing out on what actual Roman Britain would be like if, for example, he were doing this with London or York, which of course are the biggest Roman cities in, in Britain. But but also many, many other settlements as well. You could have done this in and it would have actually been felt more like a Roman town and there would have been more going on. So that's just sort of strange on its own. It 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 is this, it creates this kind of vacuum that Moore has to fill with entirely made up stuff. And one of the things that happens here in the way that Moore is doing this is that he doesn't treat the Britons, he doesn't treat the people who are inhabiting this village as Romans, right? He treats them as foreigners who are, uh, or, or, well, I guess indigenous people who are occupied by a foreign military power, which would have been the way to write this story maybe up until about the year 100 or so, 100 AD, and maybe even up until the year 200 or so, we could say. I, I might have bought that. But at this point, all of these people, assuming that they are free and not slaves, they're actually all Roman citizens. They all would have had at least some knowledge of Latin. It wouldn't have been their native language. It's not what they would have been speaking in the home, but they would have had some experience with it, some exposure to it. And I don't think that this investigator, I don't think that Caius would have been thinking about them as savages or barbarians, the words that he uses in the text, because these are taxpaying Roman citizens who participate in all of the things that Romans everywhere participate. But I will say that this is actually, this is the way that people thought about Roman Britain in the 1980s and the 1990s. So like all of during Moore's period of education, things that he might've been able to read at this point without, you know, making recourse to academic publications would have treated it this way, I will say. But it all felt kind of jarring to me because this is not the way that we think about Roman Britain anymore. It's funny to think, I mean, if you were to take this novel as a piece of well-researched historical fiction, like a James Michener novel or something like that. And we had a time machine and you could go back in time and, and track these periods of time. It's hard to even imagine just with that thought experiment that there would be this much consistency from, you know, 4,000 BC to 290 or 301 or 302 AD, um, that, that so little would change, not just with the land, but with the people and, you know, the, the, the main difference between the people of this story and the people of the last two stories is the suggestion of, uh, a tavern, right? So, I mean, maybe they're, they're building different structures, but it's just a weird thought experiment. Also, I mean, if you were like, I'm going to go travel to Northampton in 290 AD in my time machine to see what's going on there in the story, you'd miss it by 15 years, right? So there's just, there's a lot of strangeness going on here. And I wonder if that's part of the mood that Moore is setting with these pieces, that he's really interested in these changes that are the result of these really big forces, um, like civilization, like new religion, these these huge cultural shifts, instead of looking at, you know, the way a new 
agricultural tool might change the landscape, right? So I, I just think there's something different on Moore's mind here than the typical like really deeply material engagement with a place and time. No, I think that's exactly right. That's what every story has been so far that's been set at a point of of big change. And late antiquity is a period of big change. This is the period that sees two really, really important things happen. One of them is the end of the Roman Empire, the disintegration of the Roman state. And the other is the rise of Christianity. And both of them are here in this story, right? Uh, I think the, the Christians are here in the background, uh, really maybe off to the side is the better metaphor there, because the core of this story is about the failure of empire, right? It's about how this empire has a sickness and it's going to collapse. And there is, you know, that is true. It is, it is going to disintegrate eventually, but not for actually a really, really long time. Uh, like literally like almost two centuries. In fact, definitely two centuries. Well, maybe a little bit differently from the perspective of, of Britain, I should say. But this is not the moment, I guess, at which I would have set this story if that was the theme that I was looking for. I would have set this a little bit later, like maybe a generation later, 20 years later, something like that. Um, maybe you know, during the reign of Constantine or, or well, actually, really, I might have set this during the Anglo-Saxon migrations, like King Arthur times, <laughs> you know, like that right. might have been when I, when I said it and more doesn't have a story during that period, because this is actually a period of optimism and renewal for the empire after a generation of civil wars and other types of political violence and a pandemic and fiscal collapse. And I mean, just horrible, horrible time to have been alive in this part of the world. Things are looking great now. But he's got this character who's feeling some kind of despair, and then he gives us this uh, protagonist who has this disease that, you know, maybe it's scurvy, maybe it isn't, but in either case, it is acting as a kind of metaphor for how the empire itself is losing its teeth and and losing its uh its its sense of being losing its strength losing losing its vigor but actually the opposite is happening at this time yeah i mean it's really fascinating how this metaphor even extends to that dream sequence where the little boy who we know died in in the last story as the result of a roman uh slave raid is kind of giving this image you know of the small man to the Roman soldier here who then loses his tooth and he thinks it's the pebble and just kind of more is really trying to work these metaphors together and work the hauntedness of empire and civilization into uh, the story where Caius is kind of forced to carry this weight as a representative of Rome to carry the weight of what that means and to realize that Rome is failing. I don't quite know that the like impurity of the coin is is the right move to really make this <laughs> collapse like Caius's belief in the Roman Empire collapse uh, because as far as I know you know bad currency has always existed impure currency um, you know where people were always hoarding the purer coins and spending the coins with less purity this seems to me to be a thing that's happened as long as there have been precious metals used in coins. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's really fascinating. And, and I think Moore is doing a lot in this story to kind of bring everything together, to tie this all together, hopefully before he takes us to this next big change, whatever that is in the next chapter. 
Yeah, there's some other details here, I think, that really let us know what is on Moore's mind, which I think is grappling with the end of empire from a very 20th century British perspective. You know, Moore grew up in the generation of people, uh, post-war, post-World War II, people who were feeling the loss of the British Empire and feeling the decline of Britain as a as a world leader and feeling like Britain is not and feeling like Britain is not the great place to live that it used to be. You know, whether any of that was objectively true is not something I really equipped to to comment on, but that certainly was a part of the the culture of Britain when Moore was growing up uh, and and maybe even into the the 1990s though I I don't I don't have any direct experience of that, but it feels like Moore is taking his, you know, the culture that he grew up in and applying those feelings back here to this period in the Roman Empire. And one of the places I think where we see that is is something that we didn't talk about in the recap, where Caius uh, goes and pays a visit to a retired Roman general who lives in the countryside around here on a, a villa. And he's going to pay his respects is essentially what's happening, right? He's a low-level functionary for the Roman state. He's going to pay his respects to someone who is a much more important government official and also maybe get a good meal, speak in Latin for a while, right? It's a number of reasons why he's going to do this. But he's horribly disappointed in that visit because it turns out this general only wants to talk to him about sports, like the, the sports in the city of Rome, uh, the chariot races. He wants to know how the Blues are doing. That's the team he cares about. He wants to know how they've been doing since the last time he had any news about them, which we're given to understand has been a few years. And Caius walks away from that feeling really disappointed and dejected. And I had a sense there that this is more commenting on you know his own society, thinking that uh, that that the only things people care about is like what's happening on TV. No one's really looking at the world around them, even people who ought to be. That there was a lot of sort of bemoaning of you know the state of the world in Moore's day. I think embedded in this story, lots of angst in this story. <laughs> Lots and lots of angst, I think, even from the start. I mean, even we talked about that kind of classic hard-boiled opening. And we love hard-boiled fiction, you and I both do. And and part of the thing that is the driver of a hard-boiled detective is uh, a sense of dejectedness because that type of fiction grew up out of the Great Depression and the Second World War and these guys trying to get their feet under them again and trying to find something to believe in. And that's why that voice works so well for this story uh, is, is that this character is feeling that they're losing their feet, although it's not until the end of the story that we realize kind of why they feel the rug has been pulled out from under them. And and, and I wonder how much at the start of the story, Caius isn't sure why he's got so much negativity, but senses all these things breaking down. And then at the end of the story, it's that the coin is the... I don't know, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, rather than just this little thing that absolutely breaks him down. All right. Well, I want to take us into a, another direction here, Brandon, and just well do things that we have been doing for our discussions for all of these stories and just ask you, is there anything supernatural going on in this story? Yeah, I think so. I think these ghost dreams have to be supernatural. Uh, I, I can't, and the and the black dogs are here everywhere in the story, more present than they have been in, in, in the past. And I really think that um, part of what's going on in the story, the way the story ends, is Caius being drawn deeper into this local 
culture and what is present there that's maybe missing from being part of a, a global culture. And that is, I think, important to Alan Moore. Um, and I think part of what's supernatural in the story is the history of this place is kind of seeping in to Caius the longer he stays. And the longer he stays, the more I think he ends up realizing he wants to be a part of this place. So I don't know. That's my answer. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. I think the dreams are something supernatural that is happening. And we've had that elsewhere in Voice of the Fire, where dreams do seem to have something numinous, if not necessarily supernatural about them. There's some kind of magic power around dreams. And I mean, this totally 100% to me felt like a, a weird historical fiction version of uh, Twin Peaks fan fiction. I mean, just, <laughs> you know, where the, the dream actually is what leads him out to like solve the crime and, and so on. I mean, it's just, yeah, I thought that was a, a development uh, that was a lot of fun. I don't know if it was meant to be on the nose. Like, yeah, I mean, this is written, uh, well, gosh, I guess, you know, Twin Peaks is still actually very much in the zeitgeist at the time that Moore is writing these stories. I think probably the film would have just come out at the time that Moore was writing this story. So, you know, that's a bit of fun, kind of weird fan, like fan fiction that he's doing there. <laughs> but yeah, let's, uh, let's keep thinking about this, I guess, and check in also on the developments from the previous three stories. You know, we get a mention here of the cremation fields, which yeah, that's great that, you know, that's the name of one of the other stories here. What we don't get here is an explicit use of the word hob, at least I didn't notice one, uh, but we do get some information about pigs and there's some kind of festival in, that involves cooking a pig that we have seen. That's been the real through line for these stories. But what really stuck out to me here, Brandon, is that at the very beginning of this story, the protagonist refers to the missing villagers from In the Drownings. He says that the local story here is that black dogs devoured them. And you and I did not consider that as a thing. Like, we didn't discuss that when we covered In the Drownings, right? That we didn't occur to us that maybe what had happened to the villagers is that, is that black dogs devoured them. I, I don't think that's what happened to the villagers. But I do think that that is that sort of specter that is hanging over these stories that is coming into focus a little bit as this, I don't know, historical movement towards pushing everybody into belonging to a large civilization. Uh, and, you know, the black dogs could represent that. And maybe that's, that's the case. I mean, it's almost certainly the case that they were Romans. And that's, I think we see in that dream sequence, as I said before, with uh, the little boy handing that pebble to the, to the Roman soldiers, kind of the symbolic like recognition, you know, you did this in some, in some way. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's fascinating. I mean, the black dogs are a big part here. We have the girl with the blue necklace who's finally walking the paths, you know, leading through that labyrinthine ways to get to where all of the other people from the stories are. The pig ritual has to do with uh, cross-dressing um, a, a boy and a girl and all of these things that we've seen from the first story are really kind of coming together and, and we're getting closure on them in this story. And that makes me think that this story is going to act as a sort of um, act break in the novel. Yeah, well, it, it it definitely is in the sense that, you know, we've now had two stories during the Roman period, and we aren't going to get 
anymore. And I think that's a great segue into our final segment here, which is predictions. Uh, Last time, we had predicted that this story was going to involve a statue of Diocletian coming to life. Uh, It did not, (laughs) but I don't see any reason why that should stop us from being wrong again. And so, uh, yeah, let's predict what the next story is going to be. It is called November Saints, and it takes place in 1064. So actually a really uh, sizable jump in in years here. It's the biggest jump that we're going to have for the rest of the book. So what do you think is going to happen? Um, I mean, so one of the numbers that sticks out to me in British history is is 1066, uh, the Battle of Hastings. This is two years before that. Uh, So I expect this is going to have to do something with the the lead up of that. We have saints. So Christianity has kind of become a cultural force in some way. I'm not putting anything together there or making predictions about the story. I'm just suggesting things that more might have to address, but I can't, I can't guess about what this story might be about based on the title. No, this is super interesting, right? Because if we're going with the pattern of these stories are set at moments of big, important change in the history of of England and showing how Northampton participated in those or was affected by those, and then also we're having some sort of mildly supernatural elements and, and just general weirdness, you know, that seems to be what this book is doing. It's interesting to me that this story is not set in 1066 or, you know, like 1070 or something like that, where we're going to see Norman England, right, under William the Conqueror, because that's really the moment when England becomes England is after 1066, right? Everyone has heard the famous expression 1066 and all that as a kind of way of just referring to history at all, because this is the beginning <laughs> of English history, uh, or at least modern English history in in some sense. But no, he's setting it in 1064. And the events that lead to William the Conqueror coming over from Normandy to conquer England, uh, it's a succession crisis. It's about the death of a king and there being some confusion about who gets to be king after he dies. This is King Edward, but he dies in 1066. He dies early in 1066. The Battle of Hastings is much, much later in the year. It's not November. I think it's October, but um, yeah, it's so, you know, even the events that lead to that, I don't know are really happening in 1064, but yet it still feels like somehow that story must be you know, about this transition in in some way. Um, But maybe it's not. Maybe it will be about something else. But in any case, it will be our one and only glimpse of Anglo-Saxon England, though very, very late Anglo-Saxon England. And I'm I'm really excited about that. Uh, It's a fantastic period. We are skipping over, really, the entirety of the early Middle Ages, which is actually what I do. And so I'm disappointed (laughs) in that. But yeah, November Saints, you know, I think these stories have largely been taking place in the fall. And in fact, we might even find that they've all been taking place in November, which we actually get the word November here in this story, which we only can for the first time, right? Because November is a Latin word. It's the Roman name for this month. We have a Roman character now who can actually think about this as November. So maybe they've all been taking place in November. Um, So yeah, saints then to me suggest that probably someone's going to get martyred because that's one of the ways you get saints is by being martyred. Or it might be about the numinous power of like relics or something like that. Uh, Possibly this will be about some kind of Anglo-Saxon monastery. But yeah, I don't have anything like real, I don't have a real specific, clear, focused guess this time. Hopefully it's about 
people killing sheep to make paper. I mean, that's what I really want to see is a, a long story about making vellum to write something down, something important enough to kill a sheep over. You know, I need a story about that. I don't think it's been written, but uh, it's what I want. <laughs> I mean, that's what I want too. And I, <laughs> in fact, but yeah, that's let's set it at a monastery and, and show some monks engaged in that, in that activity. That would be fantastic. But I don't yes. think, I don't think that's actually what we're going to get, but we will, uh, we'll have to tune in next time, whenever that will be sometime next year, I guess, to find out. And so I think at this point that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and all our other shows, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. I want to say thanks again to the Patreon supporter who has nominated this story. This was a lot of fun for me. I just really loved uh, having to restrain myself from getting too giddy <laughs> about late antique numismatics. But yeah, this was really exciting. A lot of fun. I've really been enjoying this book. So thank you so much for that. I do want to remind listeners before we go as well that uh, Brent and I are in the middle of releasing our episodes on Alan Moore's run of Swamp Thing over on Patreon. And you know, if that interests you and you're not with us on Patreon already, now's a great time to come uh, join us there. And also do please check out the show, The Bradbury Chronicle. I was on the episode about October in the Chair, but the show's fantastic, and I hope you'll go listen to all of the episodes. And here on this show, we will be back next time with a Conan story from Robert E. Howard. This is going to be The Frost Giant's Daughter, a classic of the Conan stories. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>